0: newspress.com
1: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel, and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at six, we're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team, takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with a personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. And we can be reached 805-564-1290.
2: Or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. How are you doing today, Neil?
1: Well, I'm really excited because today's guest is making his third appearance. And because of that, I went out and bought a circular light and you can see how much better I'm lit on Zoom.
2: Yes, you look fabulous on Zoom. <laughs> I'm sure Miguel is really appreciating it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I it's not that the audience gets to, uh, but I just thought that you and Miguel should get the benefit of, of better lighting given to the fact that it's his third appearance.
2: Yes, I'm sure he's appreciating it. Although the first two were in person. So let's introduce him properly. We have with us today, Miguel Delgado El did, did I mess that your last name up? I'm sure I did. Uh, Ph.D. Director and Global Economic Research at CSUCI. Thanks, Miguel, so much for being here with us.
0: Thank you for having me again.
1: So um, we usually begin with uh, articles in the news. And when I was looking through this weekend, I found, as usual, for the last three, four weeks, it's been pretty constant, an array of articles about very, very high-priced tech stocks. and, And Tesla, which has been an incredible performer. So what I thought we could do this, more, this, this afternoon, I- instead of just doing articles, is to take a look at some of the academic work that's been done over the last 50 years that looks at growth stocks and tries to value them appropriately. Uh, what we have now is a stock market that is, uh, to some extent, being hijacked by uh, the Robinhood type investors that just look at performance without looking at earnings. In graduate school, I was able to get the benefit of reading an article uh, that was published in the early 60s in the Journal of Finance by a, a professor, Charles Holt. And what Holt did was he took a look at uh, what made a growth stock a growth stock and what made a the market the market and how you can uh, look at both of them and make a judgment as to whether the growth stock is priced too high. And the assumption that he made was and it sounds pretty simple is that a growth stock is a growth stock as long as its earnings are growing faster than all average stocks well if that's true that statement's true he said we can simply and it's ironic that not ironic but sort of uh, uh, fitting that he used log paper logarithmic paper to to demonstrate how you could essentially chart the earnings growth of, let's say, the S&P versus that of a growth stock. And at some point, the growth stock has to slow down and grow at the rate of the economy. So what he said is, let's look at any growth stock, compare it to the growth of uh, the S&P and see how many years, how many years it would take for that stock to grow at that high rate, higher than the S and P for it to be equal in value to the S and P. So what I did is I took a look at Tesla and I made some assumptions. And by the way, it's a very easy formula. We don't need uh, log paper anymore. I, I have a little formula I put together so you can change the assumptions, but let's not argue about the assumptions. Just, just for the moment, let's assume that uh, these rough estimates are correct. Uh, the S and P right now, let's say, is selling at 17 times earnings, and let's assume, which I think is very optimistic, that the S and P can grow at 10 percent per year. That is, earnings could grow at 10 percent per year. Today, Tesla is selling at 1638 times earnings. One six three eight. Now, let's assume that. Uh, Tesla can grow at 20% per year. So if you put these two statistics, these two uh, Tesla and S&P into the whole formula, and it basically shows that Tesla would have to grow at 20% per year for 57 years for it to be valued correctly. Now the compound interest tables I have don't go up to 57 years, only goes up to 50 years. So let's just take 50 years. If Tesla were to grow, its revenues were to grow at 20% per year for 50 years, its revenues would be $227.5 trillion. To show you how out of order that statement is, $227.5 trillion, total worldwide auto sales today is $2, po- is, is two, two trillion. And if auto sales were to grow at 5% per year, which is probably optimistic for the next 50 years, auto sales would be $27 trillion, which means that Tesla's revenue, in order to be valued correctly against the S&P, would have to be 10 times greater than all the auto sales in the world. And another way to look at this valuation is to take a look at GDP. GDP worldwide is about $142 trillion. If GDP were to grow for 5% for 50 years, GDP would be $1.619 trillion. That means that the 227 trillion of, uh, of Tesla would be 14% of world GDP. So the idea that Tesla is valued, within some form of reason is in my view and in Charles Holt's view, preposterous. And I think that, you know, when you look at valuing stocks as as some investment clubs do, you know, I went to Costco last weekend and it was crowded. It's the same thing. I think you're seeing with Tesla, you know, they have a great product. They're doing very well. And so, and the stock keeps going up. So why don't we keep buying it? But when you look at something like this and you put, into the, con- the, the the context of what the world is, in fact, uh, going to achieve over that period of time, you realize that it's really impossible to justify anywhere near the current valuation of Tesla.
2: It, it's out of control. I don't know if you have um, the Intelligent Investor article from this past weekend, but it it basically says the same the same thing. Um, You know, if Tesla keeps going at the rate that it did in 2020, by the end of this year, meaning 2021, it's going to have a market value of roughly $6 trillion. That's
1: huge. Right. And that's why, in fact, that article is what triggered me to go back and take a look at Holt, because I think that uh, as uh, outrageous as the pricing is based on next year's expectations, when you look at it over the period of time necessary for it to be on a present value basis worth the same as the, as the stock market, it's even more ludicrous. Um, the right. idea and
2: I think in this, this article is right on in that, you know, everyone's always trying to hop on the growth bandwagon of what was doing really well last year. Well, really what they should be looking at is the are the things that did really poorly and ho- and try to see them coming through the other way, as opposed to buying something high where, you know, if, if Tesla has the same prospects of going up as much as it did in 2020, you know, that that's just a huge market share.
1: So I think we have time for one article, which I th- think is relevant to this discussion and it's from this weekend's wall street journal. And it says Robin hood wants more female investors and uh, you know, Robin hood has this image of this macho, high, uh, highly risk taking, you know, male, young, uh, investor that's willing to take incredible risks, and what Robinhood is now saying is they need more female investors. Is what as what many firms are looking for, and um, what they found is that women tend not to be as 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 risk takers, and um, you know the bottom line here is that whether Robinhood gets gets a hold of them or not, I think that one of the hopefully mitigating factors of this craziness would be if, in fact, more women investors uh, get involved, we may see a more rational stock market. I suppose Neil, you-
2: I count on you for making, you know, making the case for, for women. Thank you.
1: Yes, that's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so, before we go to break, does anyone have any comment on my new lighting?
2: fabulous.
1: Thank you. Uh, You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back.
2: Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805 699
1: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner.
2: And we can be reached at um, moneytalk1290 at gmail.com or 805-564-1290. So Miguel, thanks so much for being on the show again. This is your third appearance and we're thrilled to have you. Um, Miguel is a PhD and the director of the Global Economic Research at CSUCI. So what's new? What's going on at uh, Cal State Channel Islands?
0: Well, I guess since the last time we talked, we've had a a small insurrection. We've had a pandemic and uh, I want to say one and a half uh, impeachments, I guess. Uh, We'll see where this second one goes. Uh, More locally, you know, we have an interim president. Our president uh, took a new job at Cal State Northridge. So now we have an interim and we'll be searching for a new one. We have a a, a new provost. So of course we have a lot of change going on, uh, on top of, uh, you know, Moving to working online uh, fully, teaching online, working with our students online. So it's been uh, an interesting year for sure.
2: So, how has teaching remotely affected you? Would you say, and and how is it going with the students?
0: You know, it's I, I want to say it's been a mixed bag. Um, when we first moved to remote teaching, we had the advantage that we had been on campus for five or six weeks already. So. I knew all my students, um, the classes I, were te- I was teaching were classes where uh, they were working on projects primarily. So all we had to do was transition to meeting online to kind of check on those projects. Um, the fall was actually harder for me because it was a, a brand new set of students. Uh, I had never met them, you know, uh, we met online, which, I mean, I'd say meet in quotations, right? Uh, in a class of 30, it's not the same as being in the classroom. and so. Um, It's challenging on both ends, right? It's challenging for us as instructors to uh, keep students motivated. Uh, It's challenging for the students. I know there's a lot of stuff going on, right? It's not just being online. Uh, The world is kind of crazy right now. And so it's not just, oh, we're online and and that's the only thing that is different. There's so much going on around them that understandably it's not easy for anyone uh, to go in in this direction. You know, we do what we can. Uh, We work really hard to Offer them the same thing that we do on campus, and uh, you know, just as there's a mixed bag, I'm sure from what we give them, uh, there's a mixed bag on the reactions from students. You know, some of them are more engaged. For some of them, uh, the move online has been very challenging, and so um, I-, I do look forward to being back on campus uh, once we can.
2: Now, are you seeing the challenges with your with your students more? Um more divided over the socioeconomic um, divide or are you seeing it across the board just depending upon their learning styles?
0: Um, I think it really depends a lot on the learning styles. It's hard to know on the socioeconomic side because uh, you know I don't see them. I, I don't really know a whole lot about who they are um, and so it's hard for me to say oh I know that this student is dealing with this or this other student is dealing with that. It's not the same thing as when you actually see them face to face and you can kind of read situations a little bit better so um, I have to imagine that, you know, there are differences uh, along socioeconomic lines in that some people have better access to the Internet. Some people have better access to say care for their children, uh, etc. Right. We, we have a, a fair amount of adult learners. And uh, for some of them, it's going to be easier to have somebody take care of their kids. For some of them, it's going to be much harder. And that makes it harder for them to uh, be on time for classes, to always be there, et cetera. So I'm I'm sure that there's some marked differences in in their experiences, for sure.
1: We're going to talk later about uh, the economic impact on various classes of people uh, on a macro level. But just looking at the student body, I imagine there are students that counted on extra income uh, and they may not be getting that extra income either because the jobs don't exist or they they, they don't want to take the risk of working in a, in a retail environment, let's say. So, do, do you see any higher dropout rate among kids who maybe are financially stressed?
0: Um, so I haven't actually looked at statistics on who may be dropping out. Um, I have to imagine that's the case, right? So, it's not just uh, not being able to work because their job may have been gone, or because they don't want to take a risk. Uh, some of them may be having to care for people, right? Some of them may be having to care for their parents or some kid that got sick. Uh, again, you know, schools all closed down, and, and a lot of parents became uh, teachers in a in a way, uh, or at least supervisors of their students teaching. And so, for a lot of our students that um, you know now have to be at home. Uh, making sure that the kids are doing their schoolwork, that they're attending their lessons and so on. uh, Those things are constraints too, right? Um, And so I have to imagine that uh, a lot of people that face more serious uh, levels of those constraints uh, probably have to make sacrifices in terms of their own education.
2: Yeah, well, with the new job uh, loss numbers that just recently were released of the 150,000 people that lost jobs um, this last month, you know, 140,000 of them were women. And it's, a lot of it is because of those, um, the jobs in which that that were lost in the hospitality industry, but a lot of it is also having to take care of parents or children that have not gone back to school. And so, you know, it's it's going to be a real crisis. I think it is a real crisis, but it's going to play itself out economically as a crisis if it doesn't uh, reverse sometime soon, for sure. So now in terms of your students who are doing group projects, how are you facilitating those? Are they just Zoom Zoom meetings or, you know, online um, interactions? And have you seen a decrease in the quality of work or per- perhaps an increase in the quality of work due to this new environment?
0: So I, I do work uh, in the institute that I run. I do work with my students sort of on projects and... Uh, Uh, Yeah, we basically transitioned to having meetings via Zoom. I mean, the the way that we, that is structured, is not really run like a class where I'm teaching material. We used to meet in my office and kind of assign duties and work on different things. Um, So now we basically do that via Zoom. And I'd say uh, we're doing about the same um, in terms of quality, I'd say that I'm probably to blame if the quality has declined a little bit because it's been hard for me to transition to this kind of way of working. You know, I'm used to being able to sit next to somebody and show them what I was doing and and kind of go from there, right? And, and yes, the, the tools that are out there are pretty good. I, I don't think it's the same thing, right? And so it's difficult for me to kind of provide the exact same experience as I would have if I was able to have them sit in my office, go through some stuff together um, but I'd say the students themselves, uh, they're motivated. Uh, what we do in the Institute is kind of like more real life work and they really enjoy that. And so I think that helps keep them motivated. Now in, in that setting, I work with very few students and that helps a lot too. Like I'm not sitting with 30 students trying to do this. I'm sitting with like five or six of them. Right. And so that makes, that makes the work a little bit easier. Do
1: you do teach large classes also.
0: I do. I do. And you know, but, but those are more of a, kind of one way teaching, right? Uh, a little bit of interaction with questions, but it's essentially here's the information that I'm providing. So that's a little bit different.
2: And when you do that, are you are you teaching the larger classes via a webinar type platform?
0: Yeah, so what I've done is um, I do record my lectures and I post them through our kind of learning system. Uh, and what I use the class time for is mostly uh, for them to ask me questions. And so we do a lot of problem solving. If they don't come up with questions, I pick a few of the problems that I know are hard and I work on them kind of step-by-step step so they can see it.
1: That, that may actually be a better way to teach. There's a whole bunch of studies about, um, particularly in the, in, in, in the secondary school area where there's been experiments about doing homework in class and, and uh, doing the, uh, the, the, uh, the reading at home. Uh, so it may actually be better for the students
0: yeah, and you know, it, it is sort of what they refer to as flipping the classroom, right, uh, mm-hmm. where you're not just using the classroom time to sort of deliver the material, they are, they are learning the material on their own, and then you're using the classroom time to make sure that all of that makes sense. Um, the challenge is you need people to really, really uh, do the work beforehand, right, and, and that's the part that it's not always easy to get everyone on the same page.
1: You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290, KZSB, and we'll be
0: right back.
4: When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. The Alzheimer's Association Central Coast Chapter has a special
1: helpline you should be aware of. The 24-7 helpline serves people with memory loss, caregivers, healthcare professionals, and the public. Here's Lindsay Leonard.
2: The phone number is 800-272-3900. If you feel that you might have a loved one or somebody that you care about that may be showing some of the signs of dementia, please give a call because we have master's levels clinicians, highly compassionate, that are there to be able to to speak with you about any of your concerns and or to provide you support with resources for that next step. Perhaps you are a caregiver yourself to a loved one and it's the middle of the night and you're having a very challenging time. Give a call to that helpline, 800-272-3900. They're there to help with navigating some of the most difficult financial and emotional challenges that our caregivers are experiencing. That phone number is 800-272-3900.
3: Here in California, thousands of kids are growing up without moms or dads to love or guide them. I'm Sean Anders, director of the Daddy's Home Movies. My wife and I adopted three amazing siblings, and they are the best thing that ever happened to us. We're a family now and so grateful for the day we called Kinship Center, who guided us to the kids we love so much. Contact Kinship Center to learn about the rewards of becoming an adoptive parent. Call 800-454-6744. That's 800-454-6744.
1: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. We were talking before about um, how students may be impacted by the economic situation, but we, uh, before the COVID crisis, we had a huge disparity in incomes over the entire country. And that obviously has been exacerbated because the most hard-hit industries, you know, whether it's travels, healthcare, other service industries, have been the hardest hit. Uh, are, are you seeing that in the numbers?
0: Yeah. So you know, the, the way I see it, I I think we have kind of like a tale of two cities, as they say, right? I mean, you have one side of the economy that uh, was able to sort of switch to working remotely. Uh, I mean, I I feel blessed every day that, you know, I have a job and that uh, as bad as 2020 was kind of globally, uh, it was not a year that necessarily uh, had a huge impact on me personally, right? I mean, it's inconvenient, of course, but uh, I feel uh, pretty fortunate. Uh, And a lot of people, that was the case, right? They were able to switch from the work they were doing in an office to uh, working online for the most part. And then you have people that just cannot do that, right? And and so anything that requires uh, face-to-face interaction, uh, you can't just switch online. And a lot of the things that sort of disappeared, at least temporarily, and some of them are still not uh, kind of out there, uh, that's exactly what it was, right? It's service industry, jobs where they need to interact with people. And uh, um, so, you know, you have the people that could easily move, uh, to online, you have the people that couldn't move online at all. And I would say it's highly correlated with people that earn uh, pretty decent wages and people that don't earn that much. Right. And so of course, it's not just that, um, the people with the lowest income, uh, are in those jobs, it's that they lost those jobs. Right. So, um, I, I think that's pretty clear. And, and from the, the, the things that I read, uh, where people are looking at sort of spending patterns. Uh, people that had high salaries before the pandemic, uh, a lot of them are kind of spending uh, just like they were before, right? Some of them may be even spending more as they're uh, doing modifications to their homes to have a more comfortable space to work from home, etc. Um, whereas, you know, people on the other end of the spectrum, if it wasn't for uh, some of the relief that they got, they, they would probably just be getting by with the bare necessities at best.
2: Now, tell us a little bit about the Institute for Global Economic Studies and what that is.
0: So, um, I took over about three years ago. This was an institute that already existed on campus, uh, and the main goal of the institute is to um, have student engagement in sort of doing economic research. So, I mostly work with econ majors. I have a few business majors that uh, sign on every now and then, um, and and what we do is that we try to work on different projects where. Uh, my main focus is let's look at data. Let's do things that are data-driven. I think as our students graduate and go out there into the workforce, uh, one of the main things that an employer is going to expect from them, certainly if you're an econ major, is can you you grab data that we give you and tell us what the data uh, says? And so that's a a big focus of what we do is just analyzing data. So, you know, we get a lot of uh, publicly available data from Uh, the Census, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and so on. But so we focus on doing projects where where, uh, we're analyzing data and trying to provide answers to what we think are interesting questions. Uh, We've done a lot of stuff on housing, in particular in Ventura County. I sit on the board of a uh, nonprofit that deals with housing. And so we've had the opportunity to have students present at a housing conference a couple of times already, which is great. You know, It it gives them a, a sense of what... They will be doing when they get a job when they finish their degrees, which is my goal: is for them to be exposed to what they would actually be doing.
2: Now, have you moved any of the um, projects that your um, students are doing into the COVID numbers? Because, gosh, there are lots of numbers coming out with the with the virus and you know uh, ICU bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, have you used any of um, any of your your knowledge in the institute for the those numbers?
0: We, we have not done anything specific to COVID, but um, for a presentation that we did a couple of months ago, we were looking at sort of how did this impact the housing market? Um, you know, what was the impact of COVID or what, what do we think the impact of COVID was on the housing market? And uh, what we saw is that the housing market in Ventura County is kind of going through the roof. If, if you're trying to sell your home in Ventura County, uh, this is a great time to do it, right? The inventory is low. Prices have risen uh, like they haven't risen before, so um, it's it seems to me that in the sort of supply demand uh, play that that happens, uh, a lot of people just chose not to sell their homes anymore. They took them off the market, uh, that reduced the inventory, uh, but the demand is still there. You have you have a couple of things going on. Uh, you know, people still need places to live, and then you have people that maybe were living in more expensive areas. Um, who can now choose to move to to what is still a nice, uh, you know, beach community, and so they're coming with big money from uh, maybe the Bay Area, and uh, settling in places like Ventura County. So the demand is still there, and, uh, and so you know that that's one where we think COVID really had an impact. Is um, it, it's kept that housing market up there. Not to mention that interest rates have been very very low, and so you know that helps fuel the demand.
2: And now,
1: as,
0: sorry, any,
2: on the on the renting side of things and with the uh, moratorium on evictions, etc. Or has it all been on home purchasing?
0: Yeah, so we haven't been able to get very good data on the rental stuff. Uh, that is one thing that I'm concerned about where this is going to go. Once those uh, moratoriums are lifted, which I think they have been expanding. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly what to expect on, on one hand, if if I own a rental property, um I don't necessarily want to evict my tenants, right If we can come to some sort of if, if they haven't been paying me, but they eventually will start paying me if I can come up with some way for them to catch up, to me that's much less costly than evicting them and then trying to find somebody else right So I'm hoping that we don't have the kind of catastrophic uh, forecast that some people have made about all these people losing their homes. Um, I hope we don't get there. Uh, it's obviously going to depend on on what the housing, I mean, on, the, on what the uh, employment situation is, and ensuring that the employment situation uh, improves so that those people can get back to their jobs, get back to making enough money to pay their rents in Gachapa. One, one of
1: the things that real estate people are, are frightened of is that during the moratorium, uh, the tenant won't pay rent. When the moratorium is over and things get better, the tenant will move out, won't pay the rent, and find a new place someplace else. And so the landlord will lose all of that rent. So there's no guarantee that the tenant's going to pay their past due rent.
0: Right, but so to some extent, as a as a land, as a homeowner or as a property owner, you have an incentive then to work with your uh, with your tenants to make it as easy as possible for mm-hmm. them to eventually catch up, because I mean moving is is a challenge, right? And and if you haven't paid your right. rent, go ahead.
2: And it's expensive to move.
0: It is expensive, and if you haven't paid your rent uh, for a year, uh, moratorium and all, uh, that's not going to look great when you're trying to get a reference for a new rental. So hopefully, it won't come to that.
2: So, so with the house, what what other projects are your students working on now? So the housing, um, and and what other what other um, data down in Ventura are you studying?
0: So we've actually worked with the economic forecast project at UCSB and we're kind of working on some joint projects with them to do economic impacts. Uh, you know, the kind of things that you'll see when some company wants to set up shop somewhere and they say, Oh, we want to know what the impact of our company is on the area. And so we're doing some of those where we're collaborating with the EFP. You know, I have uh, great colleagues that I worked with there. And so we're doing some projects like that, uh, where, uh, you know, it
2: like potentially the the impact of Amazon coming to downtown to Santa Barbara.
0: Right, right. So, so that kind of thing where we're looking at, you know, uh, what is the impact of UCSB, for example, on the local economy. Right. And so we're, we're helping them work on a project. And so we share some of the data analytics and data cleaning and so on to, to get those projects going so um, You know, real hands on work for the students, which I think is super valuable.
1: You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290, KZSB, and we'll be right back.
4: Are you ready to start and run your own successful business? Ready to grow your small business or home business? Women's Economic Ventures is a local nonprofit helping women start and build successful businesses. In addition to their highly successful self-employment training program, Weave offers services to help women succeed at every stage of their business, from startup and launch to building and sustaining a business, including individual business counseling, professional networking events, advanced business training, and small business loans to start or expand a business. Over 1,000 local businesses are now owned and operated by women who have taken part in programs and services. Whether you're ready to start up, launch, build, or sustain your business, Women's Economic Ventures is right here to help you make it happen. Call 965 6073 or visit weaveonline.org.
5: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org.
3: Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. You know, we're talking about, before you mentioned interest rates, you know, the Fed has made a, uh, what could be a seminal change in how they view interest rates, rather than to anticipate, like they did uh, seven, eight years ago. Which they did incorrectly. In retrospect, that interest rates were going to rise, and that interest rates were going to, were going to, were going to rise, and they needed to. Inflation was going to rise, and they needed to raise interest rates. Uh, now they're saying we, we should wait and not be so, so proactive. Uh, what, that that's a major change in 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 policy. And how how, how what do you think of that?
0: So it, it is, uh, I, I would. Th- I think of it primarily as a major change in the time frame that they look at, right? Because basically what they're trying to do is prevent inflation from, from taking off, right? Um, and the way that I read it now is that they're basically saying, we'll just take a longer horizon. So we've had inflation that's been so low for so long that we can let that inflation be above their 2% target for quite some time. And if we're take, looking at a long enough period, Then the average of that inflation is still going to be around the two percent target that they uh, that they normally target, right? And so that's the way I see it. Um, You know, I think considering where we are, this is probably a good thing. I suspect that's going to keep interest rates low for quite some time. I mean, they've seemed to have made a commitment for at least the next couple of years that they're going to let inflation do what it does. And without kind of stepping on the brakes, which is what they do with the interest rates, right? So, but,
1: but do you um, think, but do you think that these low interest rates, like a lot of people, are overinflating asset prices? And uh, you know, we've got we talked in the beginning about Tesla, and you know, that, that that's partly because basically money doesn't cost anything. And uh, so, do we are we basically uh, looking at the Fed not only not helping? Bust, uh, with, with a possible asset bubble, but actually causing it. Uh,
0: I agree. You know, I, I've actually been of the view that the Fed did not do what they should have done uh, sort of over the past three or four years in the sense that, you know, they always say you, you got to fix the roof when the sun is shining, right? And not wait until it starts raining. And uh, for a number of reasons, they chose not to raise the race rates fast enough. And, you uh, that left them in a position that was very similar to the position they were in in 2008. We got into a crisis. Of course, this is a very different crisis, but we got into a crisis and they had very little room to move interest rates down, right? And so I I am of the view that they probably should have raised the rates uh, faster and sooner than they did. Uh, But right now where we are thinking about, can we get the economy going as soon as we get over the medical uh, portion of this I think it's probably a good thing to keep those rates low.
1: And what do you think of the new administration? How will that, uh, you think, uh, will there be like this rotation to transportation stocks or uh, construction and uh, green, or will it be business as usual?
0: Uh, I suspect to a large extent business as usual. I think the ideas that will get circulated will be different. Uh, but how much of them will get done, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, they have the majority in the Senate now, technically, uh, but it's not a, a large majority. So I don't expect that anything that they want to do, they can, you know, uh, the president wants to do, he can do. Um, and so I I have to imagine that just kind of on my experience of looking at, at Congress over the past uh, 20 years that I've lived here, Uh, I don't expect that that's going to change dramatically where all of a sudden everything is going to, everyone is going to be able to work together and find some common ground and move things forward. Unfortunately, I think that's going to be hard. I'm hoping that, you know, with credit being as cheap as it is, that the government steps in and helps uh, state and local governments get through, uh, get through the worst of this. Um, And so I do hope to see more, I mean, people call it stimulus. I don't I don't like thinking of it as stimulus because I think of stimulus as when the economy is not doing well, we gotta get people spending. I think of it more as aid. We need to get people through this, right? This is a difficult time. And I hope that uh, the federal government will step in and help our state and local governments, which you know they need to keep balanced budgets. I hope that they will step in and help them uh, make things better.
1: you know, ever since Milton Friedman Uh, they, uh, people thought there was uh, basically everyone put a spear in, uh, fiscal policy and, uh, and uh, Keynesian economics. And now we're, we're, we're coming, I think we're coming to the point where we're going to need fiscal policy, uh, to do exactly what you were just saying. And, and I think that may be the impact of a democratic Congress that for the, you'll finally see some serious fiscal policy beyond this current COVID, uh, uh, uh stimulus
0: yeah and i hope that it's going to be more than a you know the one-time shots that some people are aiming for i hope that we get something that is more sustained so that you know people can have an extended period of unemployment and uh kind of you know survive more right uh, i think a lot of people that are getting uh, some stimulus right now they're probably just catching up on that and paying back those debts and so those people will end up exactly where they were uh, in a month. Whereas we need something that is more sustained. And and hopefully you're right, Neil, in that uh, with a democratically controlled uh, everything, they will at least be able to uh, see kind of a common vision and and get some of that done. But again, I, I don't expect this to be a 180 from what we've seen in Congress before.
2: And in terms of um, a rotational shift in this first week of this year, we've seen somewhat of a shift to value, which is, you know, opposite of what most people think happens when Democrats actually um, control the government, as well as a big bounce for alternative energy and the thought on the intern, um, you know, clean energy is it really needs to be the way of the future for the safety of the planet, and and therefore that, along with ESG portfolios, so the environmental, social, and governance, has really taken a, a larger stance. And I, most people think it would have anyways, just you know, regardless of of who was controlling the U.S. government.
0: And, and I hope that you know we don't choose to to be the last ones to see it as a nation, right? I mean that uh, that we jump on this. Uh, early on or as early on as we can. I mean, we, we had a period in which we uh, decided to get out of the pirate, uh, Paris climate agreement, et cetera. Uh, I'm hoping that those things will be will turn around uh, because I, I think there is a recognition that uh, we have to do more for the environment, right? And so uh, hopefully some of these things can become less of a partisan issue. But again, uh, the lessons from last week is that Partisan is still strong. partisanship is still strong, right? And so I do worry about that part, that uh, we, we tend to not focus on the issues. We tend to focus on, you know, what party should support a certain issue or not. And, and I think that's a mistake. I hope that uh, some of that changes.
2: And so where do you see, you know, how long do you see COVID affecting the, the economy in, in the ways of, of the shutdown at, at some point? If we continue to see this kind of um, surge in COVID cases, at some point we're all going to get it. Um, how long do you think between the surge as well as the vaccine? I guess. I guess my real question is, when do you see us getting out of this and, and opening back up in terms of restaurants and in that hospitality industry that's been so battered over the last year?
0: Well, I hope we start seeing some of it somewhat soon. Uh, but I mean, the rollout of the vaccine. Uh, it wasn't as clean as we had hoped. Um, it's still gonna take some time. Uh, I'm you know just from I mean I'm, I don't know much about medicine, I'll, I'll admit to that, but just from what I read, uh, I do get the sense that uh, experts expect that around uh, the fall, maybe we start getting to a sense of normality. I hope that before that we can start opening up uh, carefully. I, I think to a large extent, we need to learn how to live with these things. Uh, and not just lock down. This, this may happen again, right? And so I think we need to learn how do we manage this thing in a good way so that we can continue our lives. Um, does it mean that you know we have to wait a little longer in line to get to a store? Sure, that's fine, right? Does it mean that we may have to wear masks? Sure, that's fine. Uh, but I think w- we have to learn to live with it and not simply expect that we can lock down and wait until things are over because uh, that's not sustainable. You're so, listening,
1: uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment.
4: When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us. Bank on us. Bank on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job
0: candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life, young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org.
1: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who is seeking long-term financial guidance.
2: So Miguel, you know, what do you make of this Robin Hood investing, this kind of young person taking unnecessary risks or taking a lot of risks relatively speaking, and are you seeing that on campus play out with your students?
0: Uh, sure. So, you know, the the thing I like about it is that I, I think it's uh, it gives equal opportunity, right? It, it it makes it it reduces the barrier for investing and a lot of people do make a lot of money uh, investing and so i do like that it kind of levels the playing field in that sense it gives people an opportunity that may have been out of reach before um, if you're careful and you're a student maybe you kind of learn a little bit about how this works and maybe you could develop a passion for uh wall street type work and and that would be a great thing um, you, you did say, you know, maybe they take some unnecessary risks. That's the side that you, you know, you kind of wish that, or you hope that they'll be careful with. Uh, I do hear from a lot of my students, uh, you know, oddly enough, whenever they hear about somebody who uh, is an economist, they tend to think that we're all like into investing and, you know, the stocks. I don't do much investing. Uh, I leave that to experts like you, Diane. You know, you, this is what you do as a field. And, and, and there's a good reason for that, right? I always tell my students, the reason I don't do it is because if you want to do it well, I think it becomes a full-time job. You know, if, if you really want to do well investing, you need to do a lot of research. You need to be on top of a lot of things. And that's why people get paid well to do that job because it is a job. And and I have a job that I enjoy doing. And so, uh, but I do see some of my students, uh, they tell me about how they're doing and they're constantly checking their app and looking at you know how they're doing um again I, I think on the uh, sort of overall i think it's a good thing um like with anything else people have to be careful right i mean um i don't tell my students what risks to take or not to take on other things that they do and so um i think they're free to choose to do that i hope that they're wise enough not to uh you know go all in and then have some dramatic losses, which would be very, very sad to hear.
1: But, but, but you say that, you know, it's good, to, you're in a way democratizing investing by using these apps, uh, but that's like saying, you know, I don't need a medical degree to operate on myself. You know, it'd be more democratic if I could practice medicine without having any knowledge. And I think one of the problems is that the easier you make it, the more likely someone who has no real expertise will take part. And, you know, we've seen it, I've seen it in, in my years in, in Wall Street, that there are periods of time where people who don't really know what they're doing literally get get crushed. So, um, I, I, you know, yes, making it easier makes it more likely people will invest, but a lot of those people should be investing through professionals.
0: I, I agree. I, and, you know, and it's funny that you, that you mentioned that sort of the, the medical comparison, because I was thinking exactly the same thing, right? Is that if we had an app that tells you, you know, here are the different parts of the body and how you would access them or something, uh, you could imagine some people going out there and kind of trying on their own, trying to, you know, oh, I don't feel too well. Uh, let me see if I can remove my appendix, right? Yeah, I do that um,
1: because it saves <laughs> me money. I, I personally do that. But, you know, that's not, <laughs> I would not advise that.
0: And so, and so you know, <laughs> I I think the best thing we can do is, is try to uh, educate and advise them about, uh, you know, the importance of sort of uh, thinking about what they're doing, right? And, and this is not only applicable to investing, this is applicable to most of the things that they do in their lives, right? We, we try to be advisors to them in general about uh, how they should carry on in their lives. And so, um, as I mentioned, I didn't do much investing because I think that if you want to do it well, you have to devote the time to it and, and I don't have the time to do it. And so if my students ask me, should I be uh, doing this, I will tell them: Look, if if you're curious and want to learn a little bit, put some money into it. Don't put a lot. Uh, learn a little bit about it. But if you're serious, I think you you should seek you know uh, guidance from professionals.
2: And so, so with the limited time that we have left, Miguel, you know, will you share with us your how you forged that relationship with UCSB for for, for your for your um, institute with the Economic Forecast Project?
0: Uh, sure. I, I, You know, I went to grad school at UCSB. Uh, Peter Rupert, well, who is... Uh, I have
1: to interrupt and say thank you, Diane, for asking a very long-winded question when we have 15 seconds left, which means we're going to have to have Miguel back for a fourth time. Uh, thank you that, so much for being here. We can't wait for your next visit. My lighting will still be working. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and, and we'll see you next
5: week. It's...